This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wisher. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this special event uh, sponsored by the WWF um, at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, our guest this morning, whom you all know, is a woman who for all of her life has been in serious danger of giving politics a good name. <laughs> and, um, To the considerable joy of many of us of a similar vintage, she's living proof that being chronologically gifted does not impair the brain function, <laughs> even if we can never quite remember where the specs are. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's a member of the Elders, which is a group of um, stateswomen and men who are old enough to have acquired common sense and wise enough to know that it's time to share it. She became president of Ireland in the days when that country was not quite a watchword for gender equality and subsequently the UN's Commissioner for Human Rights and later its special envoy on climate change. And it's that latter issue, ladies and gentlemen, which now dominates her working life and that of the foundation which bears her name. Her new book, Climate Justice, Hope, Resilience and the Fight for a Sustainable Future, details the impact that can be made by people worldwide in terms of their personal crusades and behaviours at this moment of maximum crisis for the planet we share and risk destroying. As I said, she's chair of the Elders, that group of um, senior stateswomen and men, and uh, also they work in the field of conflict resolution and the empowerment of those who have not caused the dangers that we now face but to stand to suffer most profoundly for them. Have you found them? <laughs> I've just turned off my phone, okay? <laughs> As I say, the chronologically gifted still have a, few, still have a brain function, it just is wired slightly differently. Please welcome the indomitable life force that's Mary Robinson. <laughs> I'll start with an easy one then, Mary. What are we going to do about the Amazon? I'm glad in a way that the terrible fires that are taking place in the Amazon are taking place when the G7 is meeting in Biarritz. Um, it can't be avoided. And uh, I think President Macron is aware that this helps him to put climate change very much on the agenda. I see there were complaints by some of the advisors of President Trump to have something like a niche affair like climate change on the agenda seems irrelevant, you know. A niche affair. Yeah. A niche affair, yes. But it, it is really very serious because these are the lungs of the world. And it is because um, the president, Balacero, is, is, is encouraging um, agriculture and um, the, loggers. Uh, the loggers to, um, you know, to, 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 to really start the fires which help them um, to move in and, um, you know, remove the trees. It was probably quite comforting for you to see from this morning's papers that there were 
hundreds of thousands of Brazilians who yes. were taken to the streets yeah. to complain, never mind what's happening yeah. in Europe. There's a wonderful civil society in Brazil, which I know from my time as High Commissioner for Human Rights. Whatever the government, you have people all over the place. And actually, there's a very good former Minister of Environment from Brazil, whom I was a very good friend of before the Paris Agreement. I saw her almost crying on television the other day with what's happening. You know, it's, a, it's very emotional for people, um, and rightly so, when you see, when you see that human activity is beginning to destroy beautiful parts of nature, and they'll be gone. You know, it's, it's, it's really, fr apart from the fact that it's um, making it more risky for young people to have a good future. Talking of things that have, have we've lost already, um, perhaps you'd be kind enough to tell the audience about your recent visit to Iceland. Yes, I, I hadn't planned to go to Iceland. I planned to go to Greenland, because I'm going there straight after this. But... Uh, I had Icelandic friends who asked me if I'd come last Sunday for a memorial for the first glacier that has completely died, become completely extinct. And a poet in Iceland had written a lovely memorial, which I think some of you may have seen because it, it did get a lot of publicity. And it talked about the first, this was the first of about 300 um, glaciers in Iceland. We know what to do, and only you will know if we did it, meaning younger generations. And so it was a, a really good message. And we, we went to the uh, place, first of all, where the Prime Minister of Iceland, uh, was a young woman, well, everybody's young to me at this stage, but she's <laughs> genuinely a young Prime Minister, Catherine uh, Jacob's daughter. Um, she spoke first very well about you know, the, the, the impact on, for Iceland, but also for the world. And I found that when she invited me to speak, I actually, I found that my voice almost broke because it was such an emotional moment. I mean, um, let's put it this way, the Irish do funerals very well. I think you do them pretty well here, but Ireland's very proud of doing funerals. We, you know, we take them very seriously. You give good funeral. Yeah, but, but actually to be at a funeral of a beautiful part of nature which wasn't going to return um, you know, was really sad. I was seeing to earlier this morning that I heard somebody in the World Service describe the that bit of the Amazonian uh, rainforest which had already been burned to the ground as like looking at a graveyard. Yes, the same thing, yeah. Uh, and, and it's the responsibility that we have for future generations and the children are telling us. I had a lovely conversation yesterday with Holly Gildebrand, I think was her name. I call her the Greta Thunberg of Scotland, aged 14. And the lovely thing was we had a very good conversation smaller audience than this. This is an incredible audience. But um, it was children under 15 who asked the questions. And that I loved. You know, that, that sense, these young people, they know. They get it. They get it, absolutely. And, and that's the hope. You know. What are you going to do with the governments that don't get it? I mean, I noticed in the book you, you, you were very eloquently talking, of course, about the Paris Agreement in which you were mm. very much involved. But you also make the point that although that nice Mr. Trump um, had... Um, Pulled his, his, um I don't think I called him the nice Mr. Trump, did I? <laughs> I did, but irony is still alive in Edinburgh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I noticed that um, although he tried to pull the US and did pull the US out of the, the being a signatory to Paris, you also make the point, which is quite comforting, that a lot of people, not least um, the people running New York and California and various other parts of America, are, are going ahead anyways if they were still signatories. So what I'm wondering is, if, um, as we know, America is um, getting more and more involved in renewables at a business level, do you think that might actually sway the, the kind of Trumpian tendency? 
I think there's a lot um, of awareness and change going on. Um, when I was in Iceland, um, a group of business leaders called the B Team that I have a connection with as an elder. I'm actually chair now of the elders since the sad death of, of Kofi sure Annan. You're not cheering at the moment. <laughs> Stop. Anyway, um, um, uh, what happened, we recognized that not only were we marking the death of a glazier, but um, the following day and the following, um, especially on the Tuesday of last week, this was on last Sunday, um, last Tuesday, the, the Nordic Union were meeting with Angela Merkel in Iceland. And this group of business leaders, who were leaders of the top companies in the world, um, signed a, a strong letter pleading with the Nordic Union to declare a climate emergency to help create an urgency for the G7 and onward to the Climate Action Summit, etc. Why are business leaders so much more likely, if they're not fossil fuel, yes. much more likely now to be aware? Because they look ahead 10 years, 20 years, and they see it's going to be very bad for business if we have a climate-disrupted world, which we're now heading into. We could have 200 million climate refugees by 2050. That's an estimate. Where would they go? How, how, how could that be good for business? And what, what I find very frustrating as a former um, head of my own country is um, the short-termism of, of governments. Um, they don't seem to be able to see beyond the next election, beyond, you know, it, 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 that's the frightening thing because despite the awareness, despite the fact that the technology has meant that solar and wind have become much cheaper, battery retention is much better, still we're not bending the curve. You remember the report last October where the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change told us in very clear terms that the whole world needed to stay at 1.5 degrees and that what that meant was we have to reduce carbon emissions by 45% from 2010 levels by 2030. They said you have 12 years. Now it's 11 years and we're in end of August. We've got actually quite strong targets here in Scotland. and I'm Yes. I'm reluctant to say it, but Ireland's a bit laggardly. No, you can, you can actually say it, because I came here to launch the first climate justice fund in the world here in Edinburgh um, a few years ago, and I've been aware that um, Scotland's climate policy is much, much better, and you're very conscious. It's partly because it wasn't one of the things that Britain could rule for you. You were able to do it yourselves, so you did it well. Well done. <laughs> Am I allowed to clap? <laughs> <laughs> and it is true. Um, uh, our Taoiseach in the European Parliament um, about April last year was asked a question um, in the context of a discussion on climate. And he said, you know, I have to admit that Ireland is somewhat of a laggard on climate change and we have to change. And that was a great release for me as a former president because I have to be very careful. I have quoted the Taoiseach so often that we're somewhat of a laggard on climate change. But we actually, um, there is now a, a recognition. We've had a, a plan. Um, plans are no good unless they're implemented. And um, what, I, what I kind of message now um, when I'm talking to, to audiences is I had the privilege when I was the special envoy of the UN Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon it was at the time, before the Paris Agreement. 
I watched in September 2015, 193 countries conclude a messy negotiation for what they call the 2030 Agenda with its 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And I wear, somewhere on, on this, this side of me, I wear the badge that reflects the goals, because first of all, it's the only badge of the UN that I really like. You know, it's, a, it's a nicely designed badge. But um, the point was, uh, at the end, the package, the 2030 agenda, is really good. It's full of lovely language of human rights and gender and leaving no one behind. And I think the reason why is the 193 countries knew it was voluntary. So they agreed. And then we went forward to the Paris Climate Agreement in December. And I was even more focused on that because that was a treaty. It became weaker and weaker, but the small island states and the very poor countries, particularly in Africa and Nepal and Bangladesh, pleaded to have 1.5 degrees in the text, meaning um, that we shouldn't go above 1.5 of warming. Um, we even chanted in the street, I remember in Paris, 1.5 to stay alive, 1.5 to stay alive. And we got a new goal, which was that we have to stay well below 2 degrees Celsius and work for 1.5 degrees. And that's what the scientists were asked. They were asked to explain what's the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. And if there is a difference, do we have to stay at 1.5 degrees? And the scientists had never examined this before. They had, to, they had to do it because the new goal was well below 2 degrees and working for 1.5. And what did this mean? And what they said was between 1.5 and 2 degrees, very bad things happen. The coral reefs will pretty well disappear. The Arctic ice will pretty well disappear. And there will be a major thawing of the permafrost, which exudes not just um, carbon emissions, but methane, which is much, much more worrying. Now, in a way, all of that is beginning to happen. We're seeing permafrost melting in parts of Siberia. We're seeing fires in parts of Siberia. We're in fires in the Arctic. And of course, fires, as you began, um, in the Amazon. So. Um, in many ways, uh, the children are right to be worried about their future, and they're right to be very direct with us because it's our responsibility. We have time, and we have the possibility, but we're not doing it. We're not bending that curve yet. Interestingly, with you flagging up the permafrost um, crisis as well, because one of the, I mean, this book, apart from being a, a, a handbook of why we have to, why we have to act, and why we have to do it now, there's also some very powerful stories of of, of people who have made a huge individual contribution to trying to raise yeah. consciousness. And one of them is a woman from Alaska who had precisely that problem. You might want to just tell the audience a bit about her. Yes, and, and even before I talk about Patricia Cochran, who's the scientist from Alaska, um, two of the stories, there are 11 stories in the book, and I, I, I often joke that nine of them are about women, but there are also two good men, you know. Um, um, the ratio's about right. <laughs> but, um, you know... <laughs> um, in many ways, I could have written about 40 people. My very good editor said, make it a short book, Mary, which, which it is. Um, but it was a, a tactical book at the same time. So there are two stories about um, in America, and they happen to be two women in America. Um, the first of them is the one you asked about. Patricia Cochran is a scientist. She's a native Alaskan scientist, a very fine woman who has watched the seawater incursion taking place has watched the undermining of villages that are near the coast and now knows that several of those villages have to move now and there's no money in the rich United States. The other story from the United States is about Hurricane Katrina um, hitting um, 
um, we think about New Orleans, but actually it also hit East Biloxi, where um, uh, Sharon um, Henshaw lived. Sharon described when she was talking about where she lived um, in East Biloxi to me, said, well, of course, it was the wrong side of the tracks. She was African-American with sort of reddish, purplish kind of red hair that she dyed. Wonderful character. And she um, had a salon um, in um, East Biloxi in her, in her small um, part of being the wrong side of the tracks. And it was a place for women to go to to get their nails and their hair done. And she called herself a cosmetologist, I think, or something. Anyway, a strange title. And um, when she came to uh, her first conference on climate, it was Copenhagen, which also happened to be my first conference. And I saw her talking to another person in the book, Constance O'Kellett, who was from northern Uganda. What they had in common was both of their lives and livelihoods were completely destroyed by climate change. Um, Constance O'Kellett had terrible flooding in her village that destroyed her home and all the, the school and the village, and she formed a women's group to fight back. Um, Sharon Henshaw did exactly the same thing. She was, I mean, her salon and her home were destroyed. She rescued a few faded photographs and an antique table. She got a FEMA trailer to live in, and she had to beg at the beginning, and she had to borrow, and then she had to um, start a small credit, and she became, as she called it, accidental um, activist. And her father had been, it was a preacher who had worked for a while with Martin Luther King, so it was in her, in her genes at least. Um, but you know, to hear those two women talking together and comparing notes about being utterly humiliated by deep poverty, and I remember Constance called um, uh, Sharon Mississippi girl, <laughs> you know, it was that kind of relationship. But the interesting thing is that was my first conference too on climate. I came very late to climate. When I served as president of Ireland for seven years, I, I never said anything about climate. Um, then I went to be, for five years, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, based in Geneva, um, but also travelling around the world, giving leadership in the UN on human rights, on gender, on rights of people with disabilities, rights of indigenous peoples, so a big portfolio. But I never said anything about climate change. And then you became a granny. No, because the other part of the UN was dealing with it. That was the key. I was in a silo. And then, no, it was, it was yeah, just before I became a granny, but becoming a granny was important. Um, I was lucky enough to be working in Africa um, on economic and social rights, the rights that matter most if you don't have them, rights to food, safe water, health, education, etc. And everywhere I went in Africa, I met women like Constance, and some of them would say, is God punishing us? What's happening? And then I decided to have my foundation and my first grandchild arrived, little Rory, who's now 15, going on 16. And when I held him in my arms, I was so conscious of the dates of 2050, you know, being a significant date for climate, you know, um, all kinds of predictions about we need to be carbon neutral by 2050. And I thought to myself, what age will he be? He'd be 47 in 2050, half his life. And I kind of had this physical reaction to thinking 100 years ahead because I was his granny. And that, you know, that, that's why I'm so grateful to Greta Thunberg and Holly here in um, Scotland and all of those children who have done much more for climate justice than I was doing at the time because they've shown it's not a matter of small island states and indigenous peoples, which is what I was talking about mainly. It's everybody. It's hum the human race. 
and our children and grandchildren. You make a very potent connection in the book with all these stories, and you make the point that in order to solve climate the climate crisis, we have to acknowledge that it's inextricably linked to poverty and to human rights and to sustainability and all of the things that actually, as you see, are, are global issues, not just site-specific ones. And that was why I was so shocked at Copenhagen. My first climate conference, it was so technical, it was so scientific, it was so male. There were a few valiant women, but it was a very male environment. And I thought to myself, you know, but surely this is about human rights and gender from my, uh, you know, my awareness working in African countries of the devastating undermining of human rights, etc. And, um, you know, the truth is we're not so good at communicating. And this is why I wrote this book. And it's also why I now have a podcast. I don't know if anybody knows my podcast called Mothers of Invention. Any hands? Oh, yes, good, good. Some people know about it. Um, I'm having the greatest fun with this podcast because I'm doing it with another Irish woman. Um, she's from Cork, so she has a much stronger Cork accent. And uh, she's based in New York, and she's a very successful comedian, which is the key. Are you going to fess up to not knowing what a podcast was until this I absolutely <laughs> admit that, absolutely. In fact, I went to um, this, um, these two women, Jess and Beadie, who were friends of a friend of mine, to ask them would they help me make a documentary. The book had already been written, but it hadn't yet been published. And I was gung-ho to do something else to communicate. And they said, no, no, documentaries take too long. They've already been done, Al Gore and all that. And Mary, you're not the best person anyway. Why don't you do a podcast? And I said, what's a podcast? Never heard of it. And um, uh, the person, Maeve Higgins, who um, is a successful comedian based in New York, knows all about podcasts and podcasting. She's an expert in it, which was a great strength at the beginning because Maeve knew nothing about climate. I knew nothing about podcasts. We came together with humor. and um, She's half respectful of me. And we have the greatest fun, but we're very serious. Um, we call it mothers of invention. The byline is that climate change is a man-made problem that requires a feminist solution. And Maeve will never explain that. Maeve, yep. Do you want to have a go at explaining it? Maeve, Maeve doesn't explain, but I always feel it's important to spell out that man-made is generic. It also includes all of us, men and women and even children. We're all adding to the problem of our human activity and our emissions. Uh, yeah, men had more power and more opportunity to pollute, but it's all of us. And a feminist solution definitely includes men. And I'm glad to say increasingly includes men because the feminist solution is based on equality. Can I just flag up at, that, at this point? Because there's a woman, I'm just trying to remember her name now, the, um, from Australia. Yes. And I thought she was very emblematic of the fact that um, in our Natalie Isaac. Yes. She was very emblematic of the fact that we can all make small um, changes yes. in our behaviour yeah. and that collectively these small yes. changes can make a big impact. Yeah. I first met Natalie when I visited Australia more than 10 years ago, probably about 12 years ago, and I was so impressed with her. Um, she told, as the story is, that um, she was kind of interested in climate, saw Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, and decided, you know, I'm going to try and do something in my own home. I'm going to be more careful about switching off lights, um, um, uh, um, using less warm water for washing, hanging things out rather than, you know, being very careful. And she found after a week or a fortnight that she'd reduced her actual budget when it came in her electricity. And she thought, well, my goodness, 
Imagine if a million women in Australia would do this. It'll make a difference. And Australia has bad emissions as a, as a, as a, a developed country. So she started this, and she, she had been in, a, she'd been in the cosmetics business with a lot of packaging. So she realised she'd been adding to the problem. And she started her website, and she found that people would join, but actually... It wasn't the driving thing it had become for her. And people got distracted, and after a week or two, they'd drop out. Now she'd been able to build up her website, one, one million women, it's still going strong, with a better app, with better ways of keeping people on track. And she's trying to use the carbon that is saved by women in her one million women, which is all over the world, it's not just Australia, to help get the carbon credits for developing countries. You know, for, and yeah. so she's really moved on. Um, uh, she reminds me of, of, of the kind of the three steps now that I try to um, suggest to any uh, captive audience, and you're a captive audience, just for the next couple of minutes, if I may. Um, three steps. First of all, make climate change personal in your life. And by that I mean do something. When you go out of here, do something you wouldn't otherwise have done because you're making climate change personal. And I give the example that I've become a pescatarian. Um, that, and that lovely word to explain that I don't eat fish. I don't eat meat, I'm sorry. Don't eat meat. <laughs> there you are, an elder. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, not too popular in my country, Ireland, which has put a big bet on beef for export and all that. But anyway, um, the second step is get angry and get active. Get angry about all those with more responsibility. And that's governments across the board. Yes, Scotland is doing well, but could even do better. And I'm sure Nicola Sturgeon would agree, could do more. Um, uh, um, uh, business, particularly fossil fuel, but also agribusiness and tourism, etc. They all need to adapt much more quickly to reducing their footprint. Get active with organizations that are helping, like the World Wildlife Fund, which is sponsoring this. Okay, um, support them. And the third step, and believe it or not, I think this is the most important. We have to imagine this world that we want to hurry towards. We want to get there in 12 years with a 45% reduction in carbon and then get to zero carbon by 2050. What does this mean? I think it means, first of all, a much healthier world because we'll have got rid of the fumes of, of carbon. Um, I'm, I'm much healthier for um, water, for air. Uh, it has to be a much fairer world. We actually have to implement that 2030 ad agenda that governments thought was voluntary. We've got to go ahead and implement it because it wants to give energy to developing countries that is clean energy. And they need the investment, they need the support, and they need the off-grid energy. I mean, it is very startling in our world of 7.8 billion, I think it is now, 7.8 billion people, that over a billion never switch the switch for electricity. Never switch that switch. That 2.3 billion cook on dirty cookstoves. And yet we have the gadgets. We have the, uh, you know, the, the lights, the mini systems, the clean cookstoves. We just haven't got a moonshot approach to getting to those billion and those 2.3 billion. You know, this would be the kind of world. And then it's a world where we need to change our habits. And who changes habits in a family? With a woman, a woman. And um, we need to change our habits. We need to get away. We're getting fr away from plastics. I'm so pleased. I haven't seen any plastic since I came to Scotland. Well done, well done. You know, um, really, really impressive. Um, the hotel had a big thing of water. You could fill, you know, I filled it going up you to my room. You haven't been in a supermarket yet then? No, no, I haven't. But anyway, 
um, um, uh, throwaway things. Did you notice the emphasis now on slow cooking, slow fashion, um, relationships? When I was growing up, you know, we learned to sew, we learned to darn, we learned to put buttons, we learned to have things that lasted. And I think this throwaway society has not been good for relationships. I think when we um, have understood that we need to value things and make them last, we'll also not give gifts to our children and grandchildren quite so much as talk to them, maybe give them a book, okay, that's fine, but, but, but also you know, communicate more. And you know, I, I think we need to get excited about this world. I wonder if I could ask your advice on everybody's behalf, because we, we've been quite successful globally, or in those countries who've adopted it, with the plastic bag initiative, yeah. even though many of us shamefully have quite a few bags for life now. But um, we've been quite successful in that uh, regard. Now, then I mentioned supermarkets because I happened to do some shopping uh, mm. yesterday, and things were coming encased in several lots of packaging. Mm. You know, they were in little beds of cardboard, and then they were in more packaging, and then they were... And um, what, what would you suggest that governments or agencies or activists do to try and persuade people that there's nothing much wrong with loose food? Yeah, exactly. And, um, uh, you know, uh, we need um, less packaging and more loose fruit and food, which is perfectly normal and perfectly good. Um, um, uh, we actually had a, um, a, um, an episode. I, I've learned that podcasts drop. And that's new language to me too. And that you have episodes. And one of our episodes was on plastics. And actually, it, it was a very serious episode. And it talked about a supermarket in the Netherlands, um, um, in Amsterdam, which has banned um, from a whole series of its shelves all plastics whatsoever. All the, and they're making it very popular because they're making sure it's, it's no more expensive. I mean, often with um, you know green um, organic, it can be more expensive. It's very important that it isn't more expensive. It should be cheaper. Yes. Well, well anyway, they're, they're working hard at it. But um, we were having this very serious conversation about plastics, and Catherine Wilkinson was one of the people who'd come on our show. Who's, who's a very good scientist. She was part of the Drawdown Project. And she was explaining that we can't send our waste anymore to China because it's refusing to take it. And now other Asian countries are also refusing, and they're right, of course, to refuse. But um, Catherine says very seriously, and you know, it isn't even properly, uh, it wasn't even properly um, recycled waste. I mean, it included babies' nappies. And Maeve starts a rant, those babies, they, have, they should be more accountable. Look at the, those babies, they should really, you know, they, that's not right. Oh, I'll talk to those babies and we just burst out. And, you know, every, and that's what you remember you know, in, the, in the podcast uh, when we're talking about plastics. It also reminds you, of course, that in order to sell a serious message, humour never goes amiss. I, I learned that lesson a little bit too late in life. I learned it from some of my fellow elders like Archbishop Tutu. Yes. You know, I watched the man him, with the wonderful giggle. The man with the wonderful giggle. And he taught me a lesson. I think I mentioned it in the book, but also um, I like to share it because it was a wonderful experience of being in New York with Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, as elders about eight or nine years ago. And we were in front of an audience of young people. It was a social good conference that the UN Foundation had organized. And the young people were supposed to be on their iPhones and their iPads to create a big social media buzz. Um, trending, isn't that? Trending. Trending, yeah. Well done. Yeah. And um, um, when Archbishop Tutu is in front of young people, he expresses his love for them, his belief in them, and his arms go all over the place. And we were being moderated by this American uh, journalist, and she said quite sharply, Archbishop Tutu, why are you such an optimist? 
And he looked at her and he shook his head and he said, oh no, dearie, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And that actually, at the time, just, ah, you know, hit me. And ever since I've been thinking about it, particularly when we talk about climate, because I know that I could talk about climate change, and I think many of us could, in a way that would scare the living daylights out of you, that would drive away all energy and all hope. Um, and that's wrong. That's not the way. That's why the byline, hope, resilience, and the fight for a sustainable future is very deliberate. Um, actually, there's more than half in this glass, but I often explain that you know, the glass may not be half full, but there's something there you work with. And that's what Constance O'Kellett did, that's what Sharon Henshaw did, that's what Patricia Cochran did, that's what um, uh, the, um, uh, Anote Tong, the, the um, president of this small island state that he knew was going to go under unless he fought back and got the 1.5. Um, hope is incredibly important and it is why I, I keep saying we've got to imagine this world. And you know, I saw this world that we're talking about. I was lucky enough um, I was invited to go to the Venice Biennale, the architectural Biennale, last November, in Venice, of course, um, because it was being curated by two women architects from Ireland, two friends of mine, brilliant architects. They work as Grafton architects, Shelley and Yvonne. And um, Shelley and Yvonne chose the earth as their client, and they invited architects from around the world to respond. And they were responsible for the main hall, and then you had um, pavilions for countries, but they had a hall, a huge hall in Venice, um, of architects from all around the world. We saw the circular economy. We saw how you live together um, in a different way. We didn't see single electric vehicles, we saw electric mobility, you know, sharing. Um, we saw saris from Bangladesh that had been thrown away by poor women, being collected and um, uh, made into high fashion because there was part of the sari that you could use. The most fascinating for me was a Chinese architect who was doing aquapuncture architecture in very poor rural China in seven villages. And what it meant was the architectural team went into the village and sat and listened. What would make a difference in that village? And the example that I can remember is there was a river flowing through the village and the bridge had become broken down. Now, architects could fix the bridge, but by listening, they discovered that if they were to plan to fix the bridge in such a way that there was a covered part in the middle, then villagers could come, sit, talk, exchange, market, etc., and that would make all the difference. And that was the, That's what they designed. That was the aqu aquapuncture um, architecture. I want to bring the audience in now, but I'm just, you just reminded me of one other... Um quote in the book um, alongside the Prison of Hope and, and we've just learned this morning that uh, Christine Nagueras is, is coming here uh, to the Edinburgh International Book Festival next year and uh, she said, um, which I thought was another wonderful saying, she said impossible is not a fact, it's an attitude <laughs> and I thought yes. Christiana, Christiana is wonderful um, we're, we're very good friends, we'll be together uh, we're, we're, we're promoting women's leadership on climate change in a big way. But um, uh, Christiana was the executive secretary of the um, 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 UNFCCC um, leading up to, um, she was after Copenhagen, Cancun, um, Durban, Doha, Warsaw, and then finally um, Paris. Um, she, uh, well, um, Lima, and then finally Paris. She was the leader in the UN 
and she never stopped being hopeful, stopped being upbeat, stopped being very positive and very funny and very engaging and very, you know, she used all her feminine wiles to, you know, to make sure that the men did what they needed to do in signing up. I think you've just sold out next year's event. (laughs) Well, she is great. No, she is great. Could we have the lights up, please, and we'll get some questions from the audience. Thank you. Who's going to start us off? Somebody on the aisle there and then somebody in the middle. Could you talk about personal decision-making around air travel? That, that's a very good question, and it's a question I think about a lot because I do too much air travel. Um, the elders offset the air travel that I do, or others upset um, my, my air travel, but um, I try very hard now to send my voice. Um, I, almost every week I'm doing short videos to conferences that ask me to come and, and, and do something. Um, it's with, if I want to persuade, or from time to time, if I want to persuade to buy a book. But um, actually, um, you know, I'm very, very conscious. And um, I'm conscious that uh, we all have to think about not flying as much as we have been flying. We have to also encourage airlines to get the technical breakthrough. Um, we know that a Swiss pilot flew around the world by um, um, battery electricity. He had lots of stops, but he actually achieved around the world. That's the beginning of the technology. Of um, There will be smaller planes that will use, uh, that can fly with battery, I think, when the, when the technology is just that bit better. But um, airlines are a big polluter. So is tourism. So are, you know, there are lots of things we need to think about, and I, I think about them very don't seriously. I we'll, don't think we'll follow up on the tourism thing right at the minute, but... Uh. <laughs> Yes, there's a hand there. Thank you very much. Mary, I'd just like to get your perspective on what role and indeed responsibility you think the media have in all of this. And I suppose by media, I mean your kind of traditional broadcast media, um, but also kind of as a supplementary um, social media and the role that that has, I suppose, as you know, kind of we're moving away from the traditional mainstream. Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, I think um, for quite a long time um, in this part of the world, the media felt they had to have balance in any discussion about climate. So if you had somebody who was like me talking about climate and the way I'm talking about it, you have to have somebody who'd give the other thing. I'm glad that the media has copped on. That's no longer relevant because the, the, the preponderance of science is one way and people can see that human activity is causing so many disruptions now. In the United States, that's different. Um, you still have to have the contrarian view um, you know, it's, 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 it's sad that that's the case, but it is the case. Um, I think on, you know, social media, again, um, can be uh, incredibly important, and that's why you know, I've, I've done the podcast, that's why I, 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 I very much believe um, that, um, that the reach of people like Greta Thunberg, for example, and, and Holly, um, I mean, she was talking about what she's done already, um, uh, because that's the communication of young people um, uh, is, is much more social media. And so, um, but it, it sh- you know, if you look at the attacks on Greta Thunberg now, they're horrible, absolutely horrible. And you know, hopefully, um, you know, she has both the support and the mental strength herself not to be affected. And I asked Holly yesterday when we were having a conversation together. I said, "Are you getting, you know, criticism and that?" And she said, "Yes." She said, "But I don't pay any attention." You know, she she was strong enough not to. She had good Scottish blood in her. You know. <laughs> Just could you wait for the microphone? Is there somebody over here? Because I'm facing the wrong way, and and then up there, if you could get that mic to whoever it is up there. Somebody, the other mic. Thank you. 
Um, you mentioned Archbishop Tutu. Yes. I'm wondering if you would talk a little more about your work with the group of elders and mm. what you consider to have been their major achievements. Hmm. Thank you for that question. Uh, I was invited to join the elders right at the beginning um, in um, uh, 2007. We met informally with Nelson Mandela and Grasa and Archbishop Tutu and Jimmy Carter and um, Kofi Annan, etc., for a planning meeting. Then we were launched in um, July um, uh, 2007, which was uh, Mandela's 89th birthday. And we were lucky for the first few years, he would join us for a lunch or something when we would be in South Africa. Um, and Grasa um, has, has been a, a very strong member. Um, we've done, uh, it's difficult to say in relation to individual countries that we've visited. We were in Sudan at a very early stage. Sudan has now become um, much more hopeful um, with a good transitional government. We know the prime minister very well and we very much welcome a change that has happened. But I wouldn't say the elders contributed to it. It's almost easier to say the more, um, the things that um, uh, were on the side of reaching out with civil society. Um, we learned um, that one of the big problems um, for girls in our world today still is early child marriage. Um, about 10 million girls a year marry far too young and often much older men and they're often forced and don't, don't have any choice in the matter. And I remember, you mentioned Arch, as we call him. Um, he had a, sh a T-shirt at one stage which said, call me Arch, you know. So but that's what we called him in, in, in our company. And um, uh, I remember him uh, saying over and over again publicly, I never knew that this was such a problem. And how could this be, etc. And we went to various countries. We went to Ethiopia, Arch, Gru Brundtland and myself. We went to India with Ilabat, who was also an elder at the time. And... Um, we helped to form a major grouping now of organizations that deal with early child marriage called Girls Not Brides. It's a major, powerful alliance. Um, it actually influenced the um, uh, Equality um, uh, Goal 5 of the Sustainable Development Goals and the Health Goal, um, that um, early child marriage must be addressed more seriously, etc. Um, last July, we were in... Um, Johannesburg to mark the 10th anniversary of being formed. Um, uh, we were formed in 2000, well, uh, yes, it marked the end of our, of our 10th year um, and the 100th birthday of Mandela. And after that, Kofi Annan and myself went to Zimbabwe with Lacto Brahimi because Zimbabwe was facing elections and we wanted to try to be helpful. And actually, they were very hopeful before the elections and then things have become bad again. And I'm likely to be going very shortly to Zimbabwe with Grasa Michelle in early September to try to help in a situation where they're saying it's worse than with Mugabe. Would you believe, you know, the, the former somewhat of a tyrant as he, as he became. Um, but um, th th there's even talk, you know, of potential famine, etc. So the issues that we address are not easy to, um, you know, to, to make progress on. But we were in Ethiopia recently for our annual meeting, and we met there with the young Prime Minister, Abiy, um, who, um, he's younger than two of my children. You know, I mean, uh, when you're talking to a, a Prime Minister in Africa, where they 
generally have either presidents or prime ministers who are old and stay on forever. And he said he'd stay one term as prime minister and he's really trying to change things. And then we see what happens in Sudan, hopeful. There are hopeful signs, but also the elders are very aware um, multilateralism is under a lot more threat than it used to be. We're about to produce a paper staunchly defending multilateralism. We need multilateralism. We worry about two um, existential threats. One of them is climate change. So as an elder, I'm constantly speaking about climate change in that capacity as well. And the other one is the nuclear threat. The nuclear threat has become much worse than it was at any time um, since the Cold War. Um, I'm asked to be with Ban Ki-moon next January um, for the timing of the doomsday clock. You know, how near are we to the doomsday clock? They've asked us as elders to be there to highlight the importance of it. We're going to be closer than we've ever been to midnight. To midnight. And that is really serious because Russia and the United States have been pulling out of, they pulled out of a recent treaty. They're arming again in a very dangerous way. North Korea is far from resolved. They pulled out, the United States has pulled out of the Iran Treaty, which was holding Iran um, in place on nuclear issues. And most worrying of all, you've got Kashmir with two nuclear powers. And India said the other day that they are moving away from what they said at the beginning when they went nuclear, no first strike. They're now saying, well, maybe, maybe we won't hold to that. So, you know, um, I, I don't want to scare people unduly, but that is another existential threat. And we have a paper on nuclear um, non-proliferation disarmament. We were in China recently, had a long meeting with President Xi in China and so on. So, um, you know, we're elderly. We're, there are 11 of us. We're, we, we, we try for a kind of a group of 12 is our maximum. No, first team of 11 sounds good. <laughs> Don't but, you uh, think the very fact um, of you being a, a, such a high-profile group making high-profile visits of itself is quite potent. We, we would hope so. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say. Um, we, we certainly try to use our moral influence all the time. We have a website, for those of you who are interested, called theelders.org. And if you Google, you'll see, you know, what we're trying to do. We make statements from time to time. Um, you know, statements... Um, the, the statements that we make are very considered. They're very... Uh, we, we, we reach out to a lot of, you know, think tanks, not just in the West, but globally. We're, 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 we're very conscious that we're not Western elders. We're global elders. And it's very, very important to us that we are, you know. And, we, and I also keep in touch. I was talking on the phone recently to Jimmy Carter, whom I absolutely love. He's a, an elder emeritus, as is Archbishop Tutu, and I suppose Ilabat is an elder emerita, is she? I don't know, but anyway. Um, I aspire at some stage to be an elder emeritus or emerita, but not yet. You know, I, I'm still, um, while I, I am actually modelling myself on Jimmy Carter, who is still going strong at, what, 96 or 97, so. I have, there was yeah. a, a lovely phrase, I think it was the, the Alaskan story in the book about elders in training. Yes. I rather yes. like that concept. Yes, yes. Now, I know there's somebody down the front, but I think there's somebody up there with a mic. I've got the there. microphone up here. Oh, there you are. Right. Carry Thank on. Thank you for the microphone. Um, yes, obviously lots of food for thought here. Um, there's, um, I think that it's a big issue that we all are very complicit with, which is our sort of hunger for cheap stuff yes. that we've been sold. Yeah. Um, you spoke earlier about the importance of behaviour change, yeah. amongst many other things. Um, the evidence tells us that if we want behaviour change, we need to offer consumers 
the easiest route to that new behavior. At the moment, that's not the case, starting with very low prices mm. for things that are actually very, very expensive, but carry a lot of hidden cost. Mm. And I'm just wondering, um, how do we square that circle in a world that also faces a lot of poverty? Okay, thank you. Yeah, it, it, it's a very thoughtful question, and it, it's something that, again, uh, there's no one-line easy answer to, because it, it's a complex question. I, I, I actually... Uh, I'm very pleased that Oxfam is, is, is um, you know, saying to people, don't buy new jackets, come into Oxfam and you know, get something that you know, would be perfectly reasonable, but it's not going to add to the... Be loved. Yes, exactly. And um, you know, the, the, as I said, the slow food, etc. Ila Bat, my fellow elder, would, you know, would speak passionately about the fact, why do we eat food that is grown more than 100 miles from where we live? It's a really good question. You know, food travels all around the world with carbon footprint, but it's an externality we're not accounting for, the carbon of it. Um, uh, there is no easy answer to these questions. We have a global economy that is built on the cheap throwaway society. Um, you know, the Black Fridays, consume, consume, buy, buy, shop, shop. We can't actually go ahead in the future with that kind of incentive to our economies. It is a very, very big issue. but. By, uh, by having clean energy, we certainly reduce the emissions on the production of goods. We also have to um, try to um, encourage that we, we, we make to last so that we're not extracting from Mother Earth more than she can possibly give us. The lady in the front here. My question is very close to home. What are we going to do about books? <laughs> because we use so much water and power to make paper. Um, I'm shocked by that one. <laughs> I'm seeing nothing at all. <laughs> I, I have to say, I hope that we can um, find um, ways to produce books um, that are um, carbon zero. I hope book producers, book publishers are working hard, as every publisher, as every, everybody who's making anything should be to put a nail in the, or a, st a stake in the ground and say, we will be net zero carbon emissions by 2050 in producing books, and we will still produce books, because I still want my grandchildren and their children and grandchildren to read books and not just... There's, there's quite a large global tree planting movement. Now. Yes, that's another, that's another, the offsetting through the tree planting <laughs> and, and cooperating and doing that. I'm aware of that, yeah. You know, uh, gentlemen there. Have we got somebody with a mic, first of all? Um, climate change is obviously very important, but what I fear is that it tends to belong to the liberal left, and it has to belong to everybody. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the business people that you're dealing with who would not normally probably be considered to be supportive of this. What can we do to make this issue belong to everybody and not just a section of society? Well, one short answer would be listen to the children. <laughs> listen to our children. Um, I think the young people uh, get it much more, and um, th th there's a real um, sense, uh, you know, you have Extinction Rebellion now, who feel so strongly about it that they're prepared to have peaceful protest and be arrested. Um, uh, the, um, the, the reality is that uh, I, I, I think there is much, much more awareness. Um, I, 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 I was going to tell you a joke. It was, well, it actually wasn't a joke. It just happened. Um, uh, I had my foundation on climate justice, and I still work from that office in Dublin with the plaque 
of the of the foundation, even though it's, it came to a planned end earlier this year. And um, before the Durban conference in in Africa, um, two members of a Pan-African um, 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 coalition on climate justice came to the office. Um, uh, one of them was from Kenya, and um, she. Um, uh, the director of my uh, foundation at the time said to her, um, Anna, how much, given that you're a pan-African um, coalition on climate justice, how much um, denial do you get coming you know, from, from various parts of Africa? And um, what Anna said, I loved, she said, oh no, she said, that's a first world problem. And the other thing that um, really struck me, um, and it's an important message, uh, was when we had on our podcast a climate scientist talking about the report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And we, des we decided to have a woman, but if possible, a woman from the South. And there's a very good scientist in uh, Botswana, uh, Pauline Dubé, who had been at the meeting in Korea of the IPCC, <coughs> had taken part of the discussions, and I was asking her, or Maeve and myself were asking her about... Um, that meeting. And she kept saying, I have such empathy for developed countries because they're going to find it much harder to get to um, zero emissions. They have these grids. They have all these workers. Um, they are going to have to plan a just transition. I have such empathy for developed countries. Here in Botswana, we're trying to get electricity for those that don't have it. But we're starting from scratch, you know, we're able to do what we can do. I have such empathy. She kept repeating, I'd never heard that said before, but it's true. Take a country like Germany. I was in Germany recently at a big conference on, on, on climate and clean energy, and there is a coal commission that is trying to get Germany out of coal, but they have workers who are very powerful, with very powerful unions and, and lobbying, and it's difficult. And yet, this is the world we have to move to. Look at Australia, you know, trying to open more coal plants. Which is in the front line, of course. Which is in the front line. Look at even countries like China, which is trying hard. Um, China is a leader in the world today, the leader in the world today, on wind power and on solar power. But it's also still building coal plants because it needs the energy. And worse than that, in the sense of... Um, you know, a, a real problem, it is exporting its coal technology to developing countries. Japan is exporting its coal technology. And I'm afraid the United Kingdom, which as a whole is quite good on climate, and Scotland is probably the best part of it on climate, the United Kingdom in its export promotion is promoting coal in developing countries. Um, you know, so we have a long way to go to um, get to where we need to go, and it's not going to be easy which is why we need, um, uh, we need the children and the young people and the women leaders and the business leaders who are making a very, very strong pitch all over the world now for um, the world to start bending that curve. Climate emissions went up in 2018. I'm told it's a, a question of whether they will go up this year. If they don't, we're beginning. We're beginning to reduce by 45%. That's where we need to go. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I have to tell you that. Uh, I, I, sorry, no, I'm sorry. We're, we're, I have to tell you, uh, um, Mrs. Robinson, um, who you'll have gathered from this morning's talk, is not a woman who stays in one place longer than five minutes. She's on her way to Greenland. Um, 
immediately, which is where I suspect she'll get a warmer welcome than Mr Trump. And she's, um, <laughs> she's rushing to catch a plane, so she isn't able to actually stay and sign books for you, but she has very kindly agreed to sign books in advance. So if you buy this book, and it's, it's, a, it's just a smashing read, as you might imagine, from all you've heard this morning. If you buy this book, it is already signed by Mary Robinson. I think we've all been privileged to listen to this morning. Please join me. And join me thanking not just Mrs. Robinson, but Hannah, who's done a sterling job yes, over here. Yes, well done. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.